everyone. Uh, my name is Rahul Soons and I'm the host of the On Meaningful Work podcast and the founder of the Disruptive Business Network. Uh, welcome to another episode. Um, in this episode, I chat with Dr. Elise Bialyliu, the founder of Mindful in May, uh, which is the world's largest online mindfulness campaign. In this episode, we chat about Elise's childhood growing up in Melbourne and her work as a doctor in psychiatry. Uh, we talk about how you know, mindfulness can improve mental health, as well as Elise's own explorations in mindfulness. We talk about how she came up with the idea for Mindful in May, and in the subsequent years has grown it to a truly global community. I really had a blast uh, chatting with Elise, and I've learned a lot from her, uh, and I hope you do too. Thank you for listening. Elise, welcome to the podcast. Hi Rahul, how fun to do this with you. Oh, this is, I've been looking forward to this for so long. Uh, I've pretty much since I've started, started doing this podcast. Um, you were kind of like the archetype for someone that really fits the mold of what, what I'm trying to do here. Um, so before we kind of jump into your story, you, we were kind of in this weird moment in history with, uh, COVID-19 and uh, you know you are the founder of Mindfulness in May and, and I think like what we're seeing now because of where we are you know there's a lot of people dealing with anxiety and social isolation and and all of that um, how can mindfulness help and firstly I think if you could define what mindfulness is uh, that'd be great yeah sure yeah. So first of all, to define what mindfulness is, it's obviously the word is being thrown around a lot in different contexts um, of late over the last number of years, but to go back to its original context and source. So um, 2,500 years ago, ancient Buddhist texts, mindfulness was um, from the Pali word sati, and that means to remember or to familiarize. So it's a practice that's about familiarizing yourself with your own mind in the service of greater freedom and less suffering and greater happiness. And then ultimately also greater service to the world. So it's got this in, implicit uh, implication around not just cultivating this mind that's working its best for yourself, but also to be um, of use in the world in a positive way. Um, but then it also, some people define it as to remember mindfulness is to remember. So it's to remember what it's about remembering that we are here in this present moment. So remembering where you are right now, because the mind has that capacity and that tendency to be constantly taking us into the past and the future. So in essence, it's really a form of mental training that helps us to train our mind and our attention to be more present and therefore to be able to respond to everything in our lives with greater wisdom and greater effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And in, in terms of, I think the second part was uh, how this can be helpful in the current situation of living through this pandemic and the extra stresses. And gosh, I think it can be helpful in so many different ways and across so many different aspects of our life. So the first thing that actually came to mind was around being aware of the consumption of media. So, you know, often we're being assaulted by social media and, and media in general. And obviously there's an overload of COVID material. And I think 
if you are not mindful and aware of, of how you're relating to that, then that can have a serious impact on your mental health and mental state. Mm-hmm. So there's just that really simple practice of this question of what, what, where is my attention right now? What am I doing? And you might find yourself down this rabbit hole of news uh, and, and just before you're trying to go to sleep, reading about the horrificness of India, uh, which yes, did yeah. happen to me the other night. Um, but, but, you know, just catching yourself and just being more uh, intentional about how you're using media. So that's one, one, one aspect. And then depending on what your personal conditions are, like if you're living alone by yourself versus if you're living with family, you know, if you're in relationship or not, I think in the context of relationship, this has put a a great strain on relationships. And so mindfulness can be really helpful in helping us to manage our emotional reactions and Mm -hmm. giving us more space and more awareness of our emotions so that we, you know, don't add fire and don't add kindling to that flame of emotion and just make things so much worse. Whereas on the other side, if you're living alone, um, I think, then the challenges around isolation and loneliness, again, it's about rather than being lost in the emotion and getting swallowed up by emotions and sort of uh, finding yourself in rumination about, you know, just getting lost in whatever thoughts you're, you're, you're getting lost in mindfulness really can help with that rumination with um, an awareness of what your mind is doing. Again, coming back to that definition of to familiarize, like to be actually aware of the fact that you're getting caught in these obsessive circling thoughts and giving you an option to choose how to respond and relate to that. And essentially just like not amplifying the suffering. There's a really wonderful story in the, in the Buddhist text about the two arrows. And I think that sums up what mindfulness is about most succinctly, which is, I think the story goes something like, you know, someone came to the Buddha and said, you know, no, the Buddha said to the student, you know, in life there's certain things that you can't escape that are going to cause suffering. And that's the first arrow, uh, you know, aging, sickness, external events that are stressful. Um, but then there's the second arrow of suffering. And that's where you're actually adding this layer of self-criticism or judgment or getting lost in emotions. And that's the second arrow of suffering, which mm-hmm. is, um, not a mandatory thing. And and that's where we have a capacity to actually make a difference with ourselves. So there's this quote by Mark Twain where he says, uh, you know, I've lived a long life and I've had many troubles during that life. Very few of which actually came true. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. I love that quote as well. That's exactly the one that speaks to that second arrow, Mm -hmm. which we all do, you know, the, the extra, stress that we add on because our minds are just running wild and we don't have enough training to and discipline of mind to actually change that. And I think most people, I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a choice there. And so where does meditation fit into mindfulness? Is meditation a tool that you achieve mindfulness through or yeah, I think, the, yeah, that's right. I think, well, meditation is a very general word, sort of like I think helpful to think about it like sport. So it's a kind of practice that is related to the mind in general. Uh, and then there's various forms of different kind of meditation, but I think they all, they all really point to the same thing and they're 
they're all really trying to move people to the same place, which is just to, to help people re- recognize that a lot of the suffering that they experience is actually uh, from a lack of mastery over their own minds rather than just external things that you can't control. Mm-hmm. And mindfulness. Yeah. And then, and then mindfulness, which I, you know, which we already kind of explored of that actual definition, but I think, yeah, in terms of how do you, how do you train in mindfulness? It would be through meditation, but then it doesn't just have to be through the practice of meditation where you're sitting and, you know, closing your eyes and focusing on the breath. It's also, you know, as John Kabat-Zinn says, who I interviewed last year for Mindful in May, which I loved, he said, you know, it's not a, it's meditation isn't just about sitting and doing meditation. Your whole life is the meditation, which I really Mm. love. Okay. And so, so maybe focusing a little bit on you now, what what's your background? Where did where did you come from? Where did you, where did where were you brought up? Where were you born? So my personal background. So I was born in Melbourne, and yep. yeah, born and raised in Melbourne, and studied medicine, and went on to train in psychiatry, and was always really fascinated and quite obsessed with the big questions of, you know, what's my purpose here on 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 planet Earth, and what's what's this all about? This one life and and how can I make it as meaningful as possible? And so I think that did lead me to an idea of working in a field like medicine where, you know, it's quite obvious how your, how your work would be helping others. And that was a real draw for me. Uh, and then specifically psychiatry, because I, I just was fascinated by the mind and the brain. And I thought, well, that's where you can learn. That, that just was, was where I, where I went to. And um, and yeah, so I, so I was working in psychiatry and training to be a psychiatrist and then things took a, took a different turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, which is, which is, uh, yeah, something we definitely will explore, but, but before that, so as a school kid, were you asking those big questions as a school kid or when did those questions start to start to come to you? I was asking those questions. I would say... I was kind of seven, eight, you know, like very young. And I just remember, I distinctly remember being in bed often, you know, wandering off to sleep and having these thoughts like what happens when you die and what, I don't get it. What are we supposed to do here? You know, all like very existential, very existential questions from really young. And, uh, and then, as a school kid, you know, I, I do recall, <laughs> I was really interested in all the kind of motivational speakers and self-help <laughs> kind of obsessed, not so much anymore with Tony Robbins. Like, I, I mean, but there was a period where I was listening to Tony Robbins on cassettes on the, on the bus, on the way home and on the way to and home from school. You know, I was, and how old were you I just, Oh, I don't know. I can't remember exactly, but it was pretty young. Like I think I would have been, I don't know, teen, like 12, 13, 14, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also uh, I had, I, I had, uh, I had fortunate influences. So my mum is a psychologist and was also very interested in spirituality and Buddhism. And so that was a very strong influence in my life. And you know, she would take me, I went a couple of times with her to conferences when I was quite young as well, probably 15 or 14, 15, where mm-hmm. there would be Tibetan um, monks there. And like, I was exposed to quite a lot of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. 
And then, um, so what what made you choose medicine? Was it more the the question of how do I serve people, or because I, I know it was, I think. It was- yeah, I think it was a combination of factors. So, you know, I laugh that I obviously my parents who I'm very close with had a very strong influence in terms of what they were doing. I used to go to my dad, my dad um, is a GP, a doctor. So I used to go to his clinic when I was younger and help at the desk. And, you know, that was quite a familiar environment. Um, and so there was, you know, that that's what I was surrounded by a lot and the dinner conversations were often the combination of, you know, the, my mum and my dad and medicine and psychology. So I sort of had wow, this joke yeah. like that I went into psychiatry, which was a combo of, of the both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I have to say that I think um, I actually went into medicine with an idea about psychiatry. So it was quite a long game for me. Yeah. I, I knew I wasn't going to be a surgeon um, mm-hmm. I really had my eye on psychiatry. It was, I, I'd, I think I'd read books about psychiatrists, different novels and that kind of thing. You're, you know, Nietzsche wept and Irvin Yalom yeah. was a, was a hero of mine. And, and so I had this, yeah, just this strong idea about what it would be. And I, and I have to say, um, I was probably a little bit uninformed to be a hundred percent honest. So mm-hmm. I think I didn't, at the time of making the decision, I, I, I didn't realize that to get to the point where I was imagining, which was, you know, sitting and doing maybe psychotherapy and whatever, there was a lot between that, those two points. And a lot of it involved acute psychiatry, which, um, you know, managing people who are suicidal and very, very, the hard edge of, of psychiatry that um, is very different to working with people who are uh, more able to use their minds and not necessarily have to depend fully on, on medication. Mm-hmm. And so during that time, say, say before uni and before you chose medicine, say in your young adolescence, was there, influ- like, I mean, you know, besides Tony Robbins, but were there other influences or were there, particular memories that come up now that you think, okay, this had a defining influence on what I'm yeah, doing Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, probably, you know, and it's, it's kind of funny to maybe talk about, but probably my heritage, you know, I think mm-hmm. our heritage is such a significant aspect of the, some of the choices that we make, whether we're conscious about it or not. Absolutely. And for me, being um, being Jewish and coming from a family of, you know, all my, my four grandparents were immigrants to Australia mm. from Poland and had all been through the war and on one side had, you know, particularly horrific stories from the Holocaust. And, you know, so this is kind of the story that is in my lineage and, mm. and it took me probably a long time to realise that that kind of trauma uh, ripples down the generations and, and has mm-hmm. an effect, you know? And I think that maybe at some level discovering this thing called the Holocaust and, and really at school, I went to a school where we, we were introduced to the Holocaust at probably an inappropriate age because mm-hmm. in my community, it was the story and it was almost like people didn't realise it was almost too normalised in some way. It's, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but because it was the story of a lot of people's immigration in, in the Jewish community in Melbourne, we got exposed to it a lot. And I think when you learn that kind of story and that is actually part of your family story, 
it, op- it, it does something to your perspective on the world, I think, maybe both in a positive and a negative way. So I think something around social justice and mm. uh, service, you, you know, there's, there's almost a sense of responsibility or duty to contribute and, and, and not allow such things to happen. Even though my work was completely separate from that, you know, you could have gone and done genocide studies, which I actually did on the side at some point, but (laughs) there's something about um, an awareness of, 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 of something so significant and the fact that it actually belonged to my family, like that there was a very close story in there um, made, I think, filled me with a sense of, of, of responsibility to actually be of service and, and do good in the world. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I think also say when you were in school, um, uh, it seems to me that, uh, you, you kept reaching like beyond what school would offer. Like you, you kept reading outside of school and, you know, you were you know, like interested in self-help from a very young age. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was always, yeah, I think, I mean, I think a lot of people do that, you know, you find your own interests, whether it's whatever it is, sport or music or, uh, but I was always, I think, I think I've always had a, I think my friends would say, you know, I mean, I've often been, I've often been asked if I was a journalist, you know, when I've traveled the world <laughs> and that kind of thing, because people just think I just ask too many questions sometimes. So I think there's an inherent curiosity there. Uh, and, and I think that's, yeah, an inherent curiosity and, a, and an awareness and a, and a sensitivity around a, a relationship to the world and humans in the world. And, and, I, and I feel things quite strongly, you know, I, mm. I just, I'm someone that feels quite strongly. So when I see suffering, it affects me and I feel that I need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so talk to me about, say, then you go to med school. What was that like? you studying medicine medicine was a really interesting journey on the one hand it was I mean I'm so thankful to have had the opportunities that I did you know the opportunity to the opportunity and privilege to really study anatomy and and go and have this wild opportunity to work on a cadaver, like a a body Mm. and a real body. And I remember doing that and really just being in awe. I just felt like I was learning about myself. You know, I didn't even Mm. know at the time I had two kidneys and one liver, you know, you just don't even know that stuff sometimes when you're 18 or whatever, Mm. Uh, or maybe you do, I don't know, but, but it was, it was like I was dissecting this woman's body and brain and I was Mm. just in awe, you know, in absolute awe. So that was, you know, and then, and then other, and, and then other things like you, you, it's such a privilege that you just in, you're, you're really meeting life at its most intense. You know, my first job as a doctor was in palliative care and that was just, wow. I mean, you can imagine like going from one room to the next of people that are dying and, and having to have these conversations and, and, Oof. and, and relating to their families and um, you know, and I was whatever, 20, 21 or 22 at the time. And there was a feeling of kind of imposter. I, I, I felt the youngness of myself in that context. Um, but having these opportunities was really life changing and, and, and life and sort of identity forming in a way. 
but then on the other hand, there were, you know, it was, certainly wouldn't glamorize it. There was a lot of difficulty in medical training as well in terms of mm-hmm. just the gruelingness of it and um, sometimes the culture of it mm-hmm. where, you know, it just, it wasn't, I don't think it was the most wonderful culture. And I, I don't know even if that's changed at all, but um, many people have written books about that side of things. So yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and again, I think I learned, you know, I think you make a decision to do something when you leave school, which is kind of a joke because you don't really even know who you are. Hmm. And I think I discovered who I was through that path. And um, for me, yeah, I discovered, wow, I'm a really sensitive person. This stuff's really affecting me. Um, and that, that was pretty challenging. Yeah. The first sentence of your book is you holding a brain and, um, and how like that had like this real effect on you because you thought, you know, this is a person's memories, a person's, you know, life, a person's, you know, whatever in this one, you know, Mm. bulky kind of spongy mass thing. Um, but also I, I think talking about, you know, working in palliative care, you know, th- there's this, uh, famous article that became a book of, you know, the five regrets of the dying, yeah. which I'm sure you know about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were those conversations you had around that theme or with the patients there or was it? In palliative care? Yeah. Um, I think because I had a more junior role, it was my first, it was my first job. So I was an intern. So I didn't really have that level of authority or responsibility. So it was more, I was working with a boss and we would go down through the rounds, but uh, I, so um, there were those conversations, um, but it was more the physical on that Mm -hmm in that moment, although I did sometimes have opportunities to go in by myself and I would sit and I would try and engage in, in these, you know, in, in just opening up space for, for people to just share Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever they wanted. But I think to be honest, the most striking and the thing that stands out the most for me was a being in direct contact with the dying is such an extreme reminder of our own mortality. And so doing that every day, full time, kind of, I left the hospital and every day, you know, I was working at St. V's and across the road was this beautiful park and I'd walk out and I literally would look at the park and I just felt it was all so alive in a way that it wasn't before this job, you know, it was just the gratitude of being alive, but then also the flip side of that, the suffering that people have to endure is just so overwhelming. Um, that is a very, very overwhelming thing to, to witness the most unimaginable kinds of suffering, you know, mm-hmm. and that kind of comes back to this whole idea of mindfulness and meditation. And I, I have often, you know, I'm very acutely aware of, of, of mortality. It's something that I feel very aware of and I don't take for granted. And I think that's why a lot of people laugh at me because I'm always trying to do so much. It's like that sucking the marrow out of life. Mm-hmm. But I think that meditation is also this practice that helps us to not miss our lives, you know, because, because it's so easy for the unimportant things to fill our lives. And then, mm-hmm we just keep forgetting that this is it. This is all we've got. And 
this day you can't get back and this week and this month and this year, like, and I was actually just, I was in the park recently with a friend and she said, Oh, I've just had this, you know, she turned 42 or something. She said, I've just had this acute sense of I'm not, I'm not living how I want to be living, you know, and mm. like you could call that the midlife crisis. But, um, <laughs> but I think, you know, some kind of practice that's helping you to come back to yourself and, and mm. tune into yourself is really important in this world. Otherwise you can just be carried away by the currents of whatever's pulling your attention. Actually that reminds me of another term you mentioned in your, in, in your book, um, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of that, but it, it, it was defined by Aristotle initially. Uh, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, that, that's the one. Yes. And it's about uh, having this internal sense of well-being rather than being dependent on uh, external forces for that. Yeah. Um, is there anything you can say more about that? Um, well, yeah, I think it's really, I, I really like the concept. I think, I mean, in, in, the, in, in his writing, it was really almost like had a moral edge to it. Like eudaimonia was also about values and living good values and service and the virtues, you know, living a virtuous life. Mm -hmm. But I think what I think is so true and what I love about sort of mindfulness and the, the teaching around that, I mean, you know, you can explore it sufficiently but when you explore it more deeply under it there is this idea of impermanence that mm -hmm. and, and that word might sound abstract to people but impermanence being that everything is constantly changing nothing stays the same and therefore pleasant things come and go you know unpleasant comes and goes pleasant comes and goes but so often our lives we're, we're just basing our lives and our decision making on pleasure and pleasant and mm -hmm. I need more pleasant and I need more pleasure. And that's how we're trying to feel happy and good in our lives. But pleasant and pleasure are inevitably going to be constantly changing. And so they're just not a reliable foundation for true genuine happiness. And so, mm -hmm. um, like, and so meditation, there's something about meditation that helps you to kind of, and this is probably experienced more when you do go on extended retreat and you get that opportunity to really go deeper, but certainly still even intimately in the day, if you're doing meditation, it's, it's something about dropping the distractions and, and, mm -hmm. and coming inside. And there's something about just um, when we pull everything away and we're actually just present and we're here, there's actually a pleasure in that. And that's not mm -hmm. a kind of pleasure that's, coming and going it's kind of a more of this reservoir that you can turn to for well-being um mm -hmm. and it doesn't depend on what's happening in in the outside world at all uh so yeah and I, so i think it is about kind of recognizing your like not to say there's anything bad about seeking pleasure and pleasantness we all do it and it's it's great but if we're if we're solely attached to that and we're not cultivating a deeper um, way of experiencing well-being, then it's just a little bit unreliable. That's it's so funny you mentioned that because uh, in a couple of days I'll be hosting a book club event and we'll be talking about a brave new world. And in that, the whole dystopia is formed around seeking constant pleasure. Uh, you know, it's illegal for you in this world. It's illegal for you to be alone, and 
and and that's a, a a kind of yeah it's a dystopia and whereas um because sitting down and you know just being with yourself just unearths some truths that sometimes could be uncomfortable mm mm and and also and also i mean you know if we did live in the brave new world and we could take what was it soma was that the pill that soma, they all took yeah. <laughs> soma like you know, if we could all take Soma, a pill, and just make everything all right all the time, then, then maybe we wouldn't need meditation. I don't know. But I think mm. that there is something inherently, there's just something inherently very challenging about being human. Just from the get-go, we're born and then we're going to die. So that's a little bit problematic in itself that we have to face our own mortality. But along the way, there's just so many things that don't go to plan uh, in fact, I spoke with Angel Kyoto Williams, who is amazing. She's part of the Mindful May program. She's a really wonderful mindfulness meditation teacher. And she said something like, you know, when things do go to plan, I'm in shock, you know, like <laughs> I thought it was great. Yeah. And, and also the thing that is like the way that we feel like things are constantly getting in our way, it's getting in my way of feeling happy. Like I don't have a partner that's getting in the way of me feeling happy. Oh, then I have a partner. Now I have kids and I, now that's getting in now all the, you know, all the commitment and the exhaustion that when I get over here, that that's getting in my way of happiness. And, um, and, and so I think, yeah, things are always changing and we can't control them. And life comes with inevitable difficulties. Uh, mm -hmm. We all go through them. And so for me, it's like, it seems obvious that you would spend time kind of investing in resilience essentially. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that's what it is. I think it's like investing in resilience in a training. It doesn't have to be mindfulness meditation, but some kind of inner training that cause our attention is always focused outwards but there's so much going on in here that we can actually explore and uh, get, be get better at relating to that yeah, will be a much more reliable anchor to, to happiness. Mm -hmm. um, maybe coming back to, 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 to your story again. So you finished medicine and, and what was your first job like out of, out of med school? Uh, so well, it was, that was the palliative care. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I did palliative care and then we, we get rotated through all kinds of different jobs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So surgery and palliative care and yeah. Oncology. And then, all kinds. Yeah. And then you did psychiatry. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. So then psychiatry was kind of six years of training after medicine of which most of it was in, in work. So working in mm -hmm. hospitals and I mean, that was a whole nother level of confrontation because, you know, medicine was more like, okay, this is how the body can go wrong in a million ways. And now I'm going to see how the mind can go wrong, <laughs> go wrong in a million ways. Wow. This is really confronting. Yeah. Uh, and, and when did, when did the feeling start to come up that, okay, this is not where I want to be or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I, I need to be doing more or, uh, I think, well, I, th I think there were different, it was a bit like waves for me. It was a bit wavy. It wasn't sort of like, it was kind of, it came in and out depending on what was going on. But I, but I knew, I knew where I was heading. Like I knew I really wanted to be 
I wanted to know everything I could know about the brain and the mind. And then I wanted to help people to use their brains and minds more effectively. That was the mission. Uh, but the form changed, you know what I mean? So, uh, so in answer to your question, it's a little bit hard to pinpoint, but what I can tell you is that I know the point at which I found the next step. So, Mm. uh, because I was always exploring, you know, I was working, but then I'd often be doing trainings and things on the side to gain more tools. But it was when I went to um, a conference where I got to hear Richie Davidson, who is one of the leading scientists in the space of meditation in the brain. And he shared his research that was relatively new at the time. Uh, and he put brain scans on the, on the screen and he was sharing how mindfulness can change the brain um, in a couple of months. And he was sharing how he'd done these rigorous trials and looking at mindfulness and how it had improved the immune system. And there was just all this hard science in relation to meditation that was new to me. This was a long time ago. Uh, and, and I was just really gobsmacked because it was kind of talking my language. It was like, Oh, there's the science and I love evidence and there's the meditation. And I'd been doing that and I'd been kind of going on retreats, but it could have all came together. Uh, and, and now a lot of that science is kind of brought, it's been brought into the mainstream. I think most people would have heard the science of how meditation can change your brain and all of this kind of stuff. But at the time it was pretty new. And that was when I knew, wow, this is like, this is incredibly interesting to me because I was very passionate about meditation. And so that's when things started to turn. So just just on the science of meditation, uh, looking at it today, um, what would you say is the most interesting bit of research you've come across lately? Yeah, so there's, I mean, so so there's so much coming out all the time. Like literally, as we're speaking, there's probably another piece of new amazing <laughs> research. But I think a couple of the things that have stood out to me are, well, because I worked in the field of psychiatry, it was around the mental health piece. So there was one study that looked at how the amygdala, which is in a simplified way, the kind of fear center of the brain, people with uh, anxiety disorders, if you put them under brain scans, you'll see that their amygdala, which is the worry center where that all happens is uh, a lot larger than the average person, which implies, you know, it's being utilized that part of the brain's active and grow, you know, being activated a lot. So um, growing and, and then when they do, uh, a number of months of meditation and they put them back under the brain scanner, the amygdala had actually reduced in size. Um, mm-hmm. So sort of implying that, that, that part of the brain is doing less work, you know, the worrying less, being less anxious. And then there are lots of studies. There's a meta analysis, which is the highest form of kind of gathering the most rigorous pieces of science, looking at uh, mindfulness and anxiety. And it showed that it definitely helps reduce the symptoms of anxiety alongside also depression where the research was groundbreaking um, because it showed that uh, for people that have had multiple episodes of depression, when they did a two month mindfulness program uh, where they're practicing every day, mindfulness meditation, it reduces the chances of having a relapse of depression um, as uh, the same as antidepressants the same as staying on maintenance antidepressants. Now I just want to obviously flag that by saying to people careful with that, like don't yeah. make any <laughs> rash decisions and obviously see your, you know, individual doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists. But I mean, I think 
you know, that, that was really quite amazing. And then on a more kind of uh, biological level, uh, I think the piece about genes is fascinating. So Richie Davidson came out with a study that showed that um, a day of mindfulness practice could actually change the way that genes are expressed um, and particularly genes that code for inflammation in the body. And, you know, you could sort of argue, well, who's going to do mindfulness every day, you know, for six mm. hours a day. But it still, I think, speaks to the fact that people that are unfamiliar with meditation might think that it is a soft skill or something like that, but it's actually mm. clearly something that is having a very powerful impact on the body in really, really beneficial ways. Mm. And also I think this is my really non-medical brain speaking, but I think the traditional view of medicine was there's the mind and there's the brain yeah. and that's separate to what happens in the yes. body and you know and i think what you're saying now is that it's all yeah a hundred percent it's yeah it's 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 so ludicrous i mean i don't really think that many doctors would argue that now that mm -hmm. you know the mind body connection but there probably are still a few that think it's maybe a little bit rubbish but um yeah i think it's very powerful yeah um and also not, not back to you and you're working as a psychiatrist in emergency. Was that right? Uh, I was in, yeah, I worked in the emergency department in psychiatry and then in psychiatry wards as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when did um, the idea or this notion of using mindfulness to help the community, you know, first come to you? Yeah. How, how did so the idea Yep. Yeah. So this, so, so, so this was the idea for mindful in May, which then went on to be this global movement and program that was, um, I was in psychiatry at the time and I was using my annual leave to go on silent meditation retreats. So I was kind of really quite committed to it. And I literally just one day was in meditation at home and I had this kind of like, it really was one of those insight moments that you read about and you go, oh, that doesn't really happen. Or why is not that happened to me? And then you sit <laughs> meditating, you go, where's that moment? Um, yeah. And no, it really did happen. And it was kind of this like neon light. Uh, it was kind of meditating May, but then I changed it to mindful in May. And it was just the whole thing was just like, yep, I'm going to use, because so at the time social media had just kind of landed. It was quite new. And so I just saw this opportunity where I thought I can use I can use technology because it's pretty cheap and open to bring people together from all over the world and offer this program where, because I was getting frustrated that uh, I could see the potential of technology to reach more people and that mm -hmm. high impact, you know, rather than me going to a psych place and running a group for eight people, you know, I thought, I just saw it. I was just like, I could put this all online. And, and obviously now that sounds ridiculous because it's not very innovative to think, you know, like there's a million apps and everyone's doing everything online, particularly with mm. COVID, everyone's turned to online. But at the yeah. time um, in whatever, 2012, it just, you know, that, that wasn't so available. So mm. I saw an opportunity there. And, uh, and, and so I just started following my passion and my mm. interest. It wasn't kind of like I, it wasn't that I thought, oh, I've got a great business idea. It was like, I've got this idea and I'm really, I'm so passionate about mindful. This is what's most interesting to me. And I can see with the patients that I'm bringing it to and for myself and the science that's supporting it, this is a really important thing. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of the missing key for me. It was the missing key for me in my journey because 
I was learning, as I said, everything about, you know, how to help people when their brains have just really gone into overdrive, like at their worst. But Mm. this was the bit that I wasn't learning in psychiatry that I just felt was so important about how do we actually give people techniques to manage their minds before they get to the point where they have to come and see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And also it's kind of uh, in say a positive positive psychology sense, it's not about say curing a depression. It's how how then you do you, flourish and how do you you know lead a lead a good life rather than just yeah not just kind of treating the depression but going from Mm. okay we've treated the depression but now let's look at how do we exactly how do we Mm. flourish and i i think i realized that that was actually the place that i wanted to be you know i started off Mm. in one point um but i think my own, I think it's really important that you recognize who you are and what your strengths and skills are and mm-hmm. where you can be of most service in the world. You know, and for me, I, I realized that that actually wasn't in the acute psych wards. And I'm so grateful that there are people whose constitution and makeup and interest and passion, whatever does lie in that. Cause that mm-hmm. is a, such an important job. And mm-hmm. um, I'm glad there are people doing it. Yeah. Cause you did mention that that you are you are quite a sensitive person, and in those psych wards, did you feel some sort of like like compassion fatigue, or were you experiencing burnout? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's really interesting. So this year in Mindful of May, um, I've had a conversation with Tanya Singer, who's just um, an expert in empathy and compassion, mm-hmm. and I won't I won't give it away, maybe, but or maybe I can give it away, but. Um, she talks about the importance of understanding the difference between empathy and compassion and that empathy, which is where we resonate with someone else's feelings um, and actually feel their suffering, literally like the pain circuits in our own brain activate. So it's actually a very painful experience for us to be in empathy. And if we stay in that for too long, we, we develop empathic distress, which is quite traumatic and versus compassion, which is you witness suffering, but then there's an active process by where you are holding that suffering almost like a mother holds a child and mm-hmm. wishes for, you know, and, and, and actually wants to take action and alleviate the suffering. So it's mm-hmm. kind of, and, and it actually under the brain scan, compassion looks completely different to empathy because compassion activates our reward centers and our um, affiliation centers. So, so the point being, when you asked me, you know, did you get burnt out? I, I'd say, yeah, actually I did get burnt out and I did experience at points empathic distress because I wasn't aware of this. And I think that's a great shame. And Tanya says in her, in her talk that, you know, so we lose so many health professionals to this issue um, and there are ways of actually teaching skills to meet suffering. And I think, in this day and age with the pandemic and so much extra suffering and stress, I think we all need to learn these skills because otherwise we actually turn away from suffering because it's, it's too much for us. It's too much. Yeah. And so, so then coming back to mindful in me, um, you had this amazing idea. You knew that it was going to be a program of sorts. What, what was the first step you took to, to bring this into, to, to manifest this? Uh, just trying to think back. 
Well, yeah, I knew I was getting really interested in online. So I think the first step was I just did a lot of research because I had no idea. I, I was really, yeah, it was a completely new arena for me. So I made, I did coffees with people and I picked people's brains and I asked lots of questions and then I did, you know, the minimum viable product. <laughs> I just set it up online and it was free. And I remember getting comments. People were paranoid. They're like, how could this is just so, what's the hitch here? You know, how could this be free <laughs> uh, on social media? I was like, it's just free. Cause I was exploring and, you know, and people just didn't want to sign up cause it was free. They're like, I don't get it. There's gotta be something going on here. Anyway. So that was quite funny. Um, and then, yeah. And I just, so I, I came, yeah, it was kind of a 30 day program and I used basic technology. I really used the minimum that I could to do it. Mm. And then there was a big need and, you know, obviously it was a different landscape. I had a very good opportunity at that moment in time because mm. social media looked very dif different and there, it was a lot easier to kind of outreach and, and reach mm. people. You put one post and it goes everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then each year I just kind of responded to what was coming back to me. So I, I was getting a lot of um, people signing up and it was asking more of me to run. And so I just kept kind of chipping away at it until the time where it grew so much that it became clear that I could no longer do this as a side second mm -hmm. life sort of nighttime project. Um, and I had a job lined up in psychiatry. It was going to be my final year. And then I had to resign. I, I just I didn't have to, I decided to resign from that job and mm. just throw myself fully into running Mindful May. And then that's, that was kind of never looked back and then had two children through that. And, and, wow. and go back to, you know, properly practicing in psychiatry. Just that's what I do now. All, all about mindfulness. Yeah. So, so also I think what's amazing about mindful in me is that it's just the community that supports it year, you know, year after year. Just on in the earlier stages, did you do anything special to build that community or how did that community? Oh yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Uh, I think, well, in the day, I mean, I didn't have kids then. So, and I, I love connecting that connecting and making new connections. And I mean like meaningful connections mm -hmm. is probably one of my most favorite things. And so that was pretty easy for me. And I was going to lots of events and in-person kind of things mm -hmm. where I was meeting people and trying to form different collaborations and partnerships with people. So that was very big in the beginning uh, and also uh, running, yeah, ran events to kind mm -hmm. of, bring people together and uh, spoke at other people's events. And uh, yeah, I was running things all the time in terms of teaching meditation and, and, and being on different other people's panels and showing up to different conferences and uh, yeah, th those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And then with the growth of mindful in me, was it uh, gradual or did you reach a tipping point and then just hockey stick to um, there was, there was, well, the, the growth actually was very significant when I decided to leave my job because obviously I put everything into Mindful May. So unsurprisingly that year was the biggest year. Um, and it was also the year that I burnt out, which was extremely embarrassing, mm -hmm. um, because I was running a meditation campaign and at the end of it, I got <laughs> spat out and I was burnt out and that kind of felt 
problematic to me <laughs> on many levels. <laughs> Hang on. How, so meditation doesn't really work or but um but that was it was look that was a really big learning a learning curve and what i realized it was a very important lesson for me and i shared it back with the community because i'm all about kind of integrity and transparent you know transparency mm-hmm. and honesty and it was kind of sharing it and saying you know i'm really embarrassed about this i've actually burnt myself out here but this is what i've learned and it was that a I'd left my job and I no longer had a salary. So there was this kind of very urgent need to make this work because I had to pay the bills. So there was a kind of pressure on me that I hadn't had before. Also the campaign grew immensely and I just, we just did not have the resources to manage that. Um, and then by the time it was all kind of unfolding, it was sort of too late, you know, you kind of in it and you can't get the help that you need. And also my, probably my profile around risk taking has mm-hmm. changed um, because, you know, in medicine you take risks, but you actually are quite risk averse. And so in business, there's a different way of managing risk. And, and so that's changed. And I, my point there is that I probably should have taken more risk to invest, to get more help. But it was just me running like, you know, duck with legs, you know, spinning around. Um, And yeah. And so I think the point there is that meditation, you know, meditation can't just be tacked onto something that is immense. It's not going to be, you know, you can't just be a workaholic and then put meditation on and think that that's going to protect you. Another Um, thing of the to-do list kind of. Yeah. Or also just a, a, you know, or a um, token kind of a meditating. It's like, it's about actually reflecting on your life, bigger picture, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, we all make mistakes and it's also about bringing compassion to yourself when you, when you stuff up and when you kind of are imperfect and, you know, you've gone mm-hmm. off track a little bit. Well, also the, the burnout you experienced, you know, during while running mindful me, was that um, different to the burnout you experienced as a psychiatrist? Um, or was the experience the same? It was different in a sense, the burnout or kind of semi burnout in psychiatry was more, it was more being almost like vicarious trauma. Like you're in the face of very severe trauma. And so that has an impact on you. And there is this whole kind of vicarious traumatization, which has its own kind of, you know, tick list of symptoms and all this kind of stuff. Whereas the burnout of, I think being an entrepreneur is actually more around exhaustion. It's more like kind of sitting for too long, you know, just like not, you know, not getting enough sleep, those kinds of things, the exhaust, like a physical kind of burnout almost. Hmm. And also just on entrepreneurship, like we're living through this period, I think where entrepreneurship is now, you know, being glorified. Um, what, what are just based on your experience building mindful and male, what advice would you give to current entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs? Or, you know? Advice in what way, like in terms of you were saying it's been glorified. So about setting something up or what, what can you say more, what you mean by what kind of advice? I think when I say glorified, it's like entrepreneurs in some sense, especially, you know, in the tech sector where I'm at, they're, they're like the new rock stars. And it's something that everyone aspires to. 
But I think just based on your journey, um, and you built something, you know, quite incredible. Um, just based on that, what advice would you give people who are thinking about entrepreneurship? Mm. Well, I think for me, a big turning point was actually getting a business coach. Mm-hmm. And so the point or the advice would be that, and but the thing, the reason why I didn't get that sooner is because I probably couldn't afford to, or mm. I didn't want to spend money doing that. I wanted to put the money into building a website and doing all of that kind of stuff. So in the beginning, you do have to kind of hack it and make sacrifices. But I really think uh, it can be a very lonely, isolated thing. So I think really putting in place supports, whether that's paid or mentor or just friends that you can even bounce off that are maybe even slightly ahead of where you're at. Um, Mm. Don't do it alone because people have done this so many times before you. And there's obviously these predictable places where things can go, you know, like that's such a predictable thing, growth and being prepared Mm. for growth. That's kind of a 101, but I just didn't know it. So yeah, I think it's something about you can do. I mean, it is challenging, but I think trying to get as much support and people have done it before is gold. Mm-hmm. And say with you, you've been running Mindful in May for, for a few years now. Um, what now makes you feel alive like while running it? Mm, mm, really good question. It's changed because, you know, I've changed and it's, it's, I think for me, like running this, running, doing this work is also, it's just so aligned with who I am and what I am most interested in. Mm -hmm. And, and so what makes me feel alive now is different because, you know, I've had two kids and so Mm -hmm. I didn't have kids when I started this journey. And I think that's probably the most significant shift for me because it's not all about me anymore. And uh, so what makes me feel most alive right now is actually being the best mum that I can be. And, and a lot of what I've learned, I feel supports me in that. And, and obviously the curation in the program also changes each year as I like, cause I can't help it. I'm like folks on different things. So for example, <laughs> you know, this year we've got a very strong emphasis on like each week there's kid meditations and there's also a very strong emphasis on the week on relationships because Mm -hmm. I'm finding relationships a very interesting field of aliveness, particularly in the context of having kids and, you know, making sure that you can kind of honor your relationship in the context of kids as well. But I think another area of aliveness that's is, is really um, which isn't necessarily a positive thing is my, concern about the future really Mm. that the the whole climate situation and that is in relation to my children as well that's become Mm. very alive for me in a way that it wasn't before I had kids and and I think it it still connects with mindfulness in a way because I think there is you know it's very easy to kind of turn away from things that are scary and there's Mm. a lot being written at the moment about climate anxiety and eco-anxiety and I think sometimes things are just people don't want to look at it because it's actually too anxiety provoking. Um, Mm. So I feel there might be some kind of, yeah, something on that edge of, of kind of climate and also technology. Yeah. Um, 
technology and where it's going and yeah almost like I've spent a lot of time looking inwards and now I'm feeling a sense of like okay now there's all these big problems and mm-hmm. how can I the question I like to ask myself is yeah how can I use my life in its great best capacity to contribute and make a difference that's the question that I like to ask that kind of drives my choices Wow. And, and um, just with, so just a couple of, couple of final questions. So just with Mindful in May, uh, how does the program run? Like what can people es- uh, expect? Yeah, you know? sure. So I like to say you and I have spoken previously about James Clear, Atomic Habits. We're both very <laughs> big fans. Hmm. And I think that, you know, I want to say that Mindful in May it's really, I created it to be something that is really doable for busy people. And it's mm. all about 10 minutes a day. So basically people sign up at mindfullyamay.org and then they get a online program that gets delivered via email and they log in and they get daily content. The minimum thing you need to commit to is 10 minutes a day of meditation and you get everything you need. So you get the meditation each day by different various experts Uh, And then every second day you get a video interview teaching, which is from various experts. I've mentioned a few of them. Um, And, and that's where I kind of being kind of the scientist or someone that's really interested in the science. I really make an effort to pull the absolute gold nuggets from these people and they're really uh, doable practices. You know, I'm not interested in so much philosophy, like that's wonderful. I love it, but it's really about actionable change in your life Uh, And then you get to do it with a global community and there's the online Facebook group and there's that real sense of you're part of something and you're held accountable by this community. And then, of course, the big emphasis on doing good in the world. So the idea is it's not just about doing this for yourself. It's you're dedicating this month to a cause greater than yourself. And so you're invited to make an optional donation when you register. And that's to bring um, clean water to people in need across the world. And that is obviously a very big issue um, <laughs> and something that we can make a difference to through not much money. So it's like $50 is all it takes to bring clean water to one person for life. So um, yeah, the good thing is it's kind of like you sign up at the worst case, you kind of don't finish it and then you've just done something good for someone else. But the best case is, and we've done research to show this, that if you put 10 minutes aside to practice every day for the month of May, our research, which we did in collaboration with Monash Uni shows that you do actually, people have experienced um, measurable benefits around Mm. stress, around flourishing. We kind of use this flourishing scale um, and there was a result of people experiencing more flourishing. So that was me wanting to make sure that what I'm doing actually is substantiated and and is Mm. making a difference. That, that's incredible, El. And um, also just briefly, like you mentioned experts, but, but you really get like the best of the best. Like the people that are part of this program are just, you know, incredible from, you know, John Kabat-Zinn yeah, to Dan Yeah, Goldman. they are. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think, I think that there's a, like, so there's lots of apps around and places that you can get information. But I think what people come to Mindful MA for predominantly is that, it's a trusted place where we're bringing to be, we're bringing together the best of the best who are grounded in science, you know, cause mm. that's what we're about. So it's not esoteric. It's actually, there's, there's science to support everything that is being taught in this program. And that's what I love about it. Um, mm. 
not to say that things that aren't supported by science don't help, but mm. I think it's really motivating when you hear from these, um, from these experts how this is making a difference. And also it's, it's, it's tangible meditation advice. So there's a lot of misconceptions about meditation out there that people mm. have that, that, that obstruct them from this practice. Like, Oh, meditate. I'm supposed to stop my thoughts, which it's not about, or I have to do an hour or 30 minutes a day. No, mm. you know, there's so many, there's so many obstacles that get in people's way. So we kind of go through all of that stuff and give people really practical tips on also how to overcome the predictable obstacles, like I'm falling asleep in meditation. When should I do it? All of these kind of questions. How can I do it with my kids? What do I, how do I do it at work? Can I do it? You know, how can it improve my relationships? We cover it all. Mm, amazing. And final question, Elise. Um, so the name of this podcast is on meaningful work. So what does the term on meaningful work mean to you? So I think meaningful work is really, you know, it's not necessarily work that isn't hard. I think it's potentially really hard, but it's that you're doing something that's hard that is really aligned with what you believe in and what you stand for. And that enables you to reach the end of your life and look back and go, I have spent this life really well. I have made a difference in whatever way that means to you, whether you're an amazing musician, whether you're a doctor, what, whether you're an entrepreneur that's come up with some new technology that's helped, it doesn't matter, but just that you are living along the lines of what you truly believe in and that you can get to the end of your life and feel like I've done, I, I couldn't have, you know, I'd live it again. I'd live it again. Yeah. That's, that's an amazing answer. And thank you so much else for doing this, not only for doing this, but just for, you know, for your friendship over the last seven or eight years, it's you know, pleasure right back yeah. at you, right back at you. Love our and, conversation. <laughs> and for all those listening, you know, mindful in May is now ready to sign up for, and I'll throw in the links. And again, thank you, Els. Pleasure. Thanks.